your Division II champions, Grand Valley State. Congratulations to the Lakers. For the sixth time in program history, they are the national champions. Grand Valley has its third national championship in four years. Grand Valley State celebrating a national championship in Division II. It's the Ankara Podcast, presented by the Grand Valley Sports Network. Nation. Welcome back to another edition of the Anchor Up Podcast. Today is Thursday, October 8th. Jake Levy, Tim Knott, the Anchor Up Podcast brought to you by Metro Health, the official sports medicine provider of GVSU Athletics. Your health, our passion. Busy week this week. We talked to head track and field and cross country coach Jerry Baltus. He's been here for almost as long as you have, Tim. Close, close. He started in 99. I started in 97. So, um, you know, and one thing we, uh, we, we talked about while we were interviewing Jerry, um, uh, we have a picture of Jerry up in the office of when he was a student athlete at Butler. Um, he, he ran track and cross country and he is in this little weight room with a bar only lifting weights. And that's what I think about when I think about Jerry Baltus is a, the movie Hoosiers, because he wanted to be so good in basketball, and he wanted to, you know, I mean, when you think of Hoosiers, you think of Jerry Baltus and uh, this little shooter from the outside, and then I th- and then that takes me back to uh, Jerry lifting weights in that little Butler weight room with a the bar and maybe a couple five pound weights on the on the end. I think he weighed like 108 pounds. He said. Yeah, he said his running weight was 108 pounds, but he told some great stories, too, about the growth of GVSU track and field, which, by the way, the guy has more GLIAC championships than he did pounds on him when he was yes. a runner back that, in, in cross-country in college. Yeah. So that, that, that's an important note to make there as well. Over 110 GLIAC championships for Jerry Baltus here at Grand Valley State, and it was fun to talk to him about a couple of those breakthrough moments that you know 2010 women's cross-country team, the 2018 men's cross-country team. Both kind of had some similarities, so we'll talk to him about that. It's a great interview. Stick around for it about 30, 35 minutes or so. Hope you enjoy it coming up in just a little bit. But before we get there, let's also talk about what happened over the weekend. The Ravens got back to their winning ways, and Matt Judon, the former Laker, had a couple of sacks, was a force on the defensive side for the most impressive to see. Yeah, you uh, watched some post-game interviews, and they said that uh, he kind of had a coming-to-Jesus uh, moment and felt like he wasn't playing playing with reckless abandon and it was getting needed to get back to playing with that um, that, that effort. And uh, if you hear uh, Coach Harbaugh's comments, he played more than the system and, and did his job. So a great week for Matt Judon. Uh, two quarterback sacks. Uh, the Ravens get back on the – on the winning track. They certainly needed it. And then you look at on the other side, so then you have that Chiefs-Patriots game moved to Monday night because of Cam Newton testing positive for COVID-19. The good news at the time was that he was the only person on that entire Patriots team to test positive. But now here midway through this week, the news drops that their best defensive player, Stephon Gilmore, tests positive for COVID-19. So now the Patriots shut down practice on Wednesday. He so far seems to be the only one that's tested yeah. positive, but now you kind of start to turn your head and say, okay, what's going on I, here? Well, I still think I think the NFL I, – I think every professional organization has done an outstanding job. Basketball, baseball, hockey. I mean, hockey, maybe it's because it was in Canada. We didn't hear anything get out in terms of COVID-19 in, during the hockey uh, playoffs. And I think football's done an unbelievable job, especially when you consider football's not in a bubble. 
Well, I was going to say, so hockey and basketball you can put in the same category because they were isolated, they were in the bubble, they were in their own worlds versus baseball and football have been in their own separate ballparks, traveling across country. In football, they've even had fans in some places. At least baseball made the blanket statement, no fans whatsoever. I just think that they're doing a a great job in terms of the number of cases. I think for the most part the the athletes are – doing a good job of you know controlling their environment and you knew you were going to have you knew that you're going to have some breakouts i think they've done a great job of controlling those breakouts and uh quarantining them and you know i think that in terms of the reporting of it i think that uh people are starting to say hey you know what it's going to happen i mean there's nothing we can do uh we need to control the situation control the environment and move forward or or we're just not going to play or we're going to shut the whole thing down so um I, you know, in terms of reporting it, I think it's become a you know more of a hey, yep, it's there. Why are we surprised? We knew it was going to happen. I don't. Damon Woody went on ESPN today, and he 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 echoed those thoughts in terms of hey, you knew it was going to happen. So why is anybody surprised? And why why are we making a big deal about it? I mean, they're going to quarantine them. You're going to try to move forward. The NFL's done a great job of of, of aligning those schedules and and. Uh, playing on those open dates, so everybody's on you know, the same playing field. We'll see what happens when the NFL gets to the postseason because baseball is doing these neutral site bubbles for the right. postseason. We'll see if football looks into doing something. So maybe you have an NFC bubble, an AFC bubble, and then, then maybe you try to still play the Super Bowl in Tampa. I mean, Florida's kind of been a hotbed for COVID-19. That's been one of the tougher states to try to mitigate through that stuff. But all of that will be determined as we get closer, I'd imagine. You would think that football is holding out hope that things will kind of work themselves out by the time they get to that point, but it's getting closer and closer by the well, day. Well, I think, you know, I, I do think that football is really going to hold out hope. You're exactly right, because they have allowed fans in. So, you know, like Kansas City, um, uh, you know, you're going to all of a sudden say we're taking all your home playoff games away, but yet we've allowed fans at the at, at your home games throughout the season. Um, you know, I think... I think well, that's then, gonna... then the question there, though, Tim, is what's more important to you as a league? Do you want to make sure that fans are involved, that the teams get the home field advantage, or do you want to make sure that what doesn't happen is what happened to the Patriots, where the Saturday before a potential AFC championship game, a starting quarterback comes down with COVID because they haven't been quarantined, they haven't been bubbled, they haven't been isolated, and so you have that issue. I think for the league, in terms of protecting the value of the playoffs, when you look at the cost-benefit analysis, it's probably more beneficial for them to have the players isolated so you don't have that kind of issue and tarnish potentially a playoff run. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, it's going to be wait and see. I mean, I, you know, I think that they still want to stay away from the bubble situation if they can at, at all costs, but I don't know, we'll see. We certainly will, and I mean, speaking of waiting and seeing, we'll have to wait to see one more thing to them very interested about. Don't forget the GVSU Fall Fundraising Golf Outing is coming up on Friday, October 16th. 7.30 registration includes coffee and donuts, and then you also have a shotgun start at 8.30. $75 per golfer. It includes the 18 holes in a cart, range balls, and of course the morning refreshments as well. But it might involve Tim Knott playing a round of golf, and I want you to go on the record. You have gone on the record several times as saying that you are the best once-a-year golfer. I think I am. In America. Who doesn't, yeah, who doesn't play? I mean, you can't, do, like, be a former professional and only play one time a year. I'm talking about a guy like me who will play scrambles only. Like, after nine holes, playing by myself, it's like, ah, I'm done. <laughs> you know, that, I don't want to ruin the rest of my day. But the one time I have no bad habits, 
in terms of, you know, the slice and and I focus on the basics. I am unbelievable with the short irons. Well, this I mean, is a chance for you to put your money where your mouth exactly. is. Exactly. So, I'm going I might I might put together a team of three just ringers and then me. I mean, and that's then, the way to do I it. I mean, and then, you know, I won't even drive. I mean, I can drive just to drive, I guess. But, you know, the, the short wedges in and putting, that's my strength. I'm a, I'm a really good par three golfer. That's my, that's my ace in the hole right there is the, the par three courses. I like playing those. It d- doesn't require the big, long drives. See, I'm waiting for Gary Bissell to help fix my swing, but my driver is not my friend. I slice it about 80% of the time. So well, usually right. I just leave it in the bag and I use my hybrid off the tee. So to your point, when I'm playing in a scramble, it's really tough because if somebody bombs the drive, I almost, just like you, I'm just like, well, I'm just going to Why am I going to drive? Up and I'm not going to outdrive that with my little hybrid <laughs> exactly. that I can't hit more than 220 yards. Which leads to you overswinging bad habits. Yep. I mean, 100%. so right there. I mean, I stay in my lane. I'm a short, I'm a <laughs> short, you know, short shot golfer. So yeah, we'll see. There's there's some talks out there. I've got some feelers what out do, there. What do we need to get you to do it? What What is the, the line in the sand that if this happens, you will put together a team? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm in discussions right now with a couple different um, team players team possibilities. Oh, put, so it just depends together. on whether or not the members yeah, that you right. need to feel like right. you have a chance to if, win this yes, thing, participate. If, they, if, they, if their schedule opens up, it, then I have a possibility of being picked up by them and uh, then I'll, I'll, I'll play. Alright, so, well if you're listening kinda, out there, a chance the, to potentially go head-to-head with Tim Knott at the uh, GVSU Fall Fundraising Golf Outing. The first one ever. So it should be a lot of fun. $75 a golfer. Again, that's at the Meadows on Friday, October 16th. Registration available. Go to gvsulakers.com to find out how you can register for that. The Anchor Up podcast is brought to you in part by NovaCare. Discover the power of physical therapy, the official physical therapy provider of GVSU Athletics, and by PNC Bank, the official bank of GVSU Athletics, PNC Bank, for the achiever in you. And it's another week, another achievement for Tyler Bradfield, speaking of which, semifinalist for the William V. Campbell Trophy, another really impressive, all-encompassing honor for D2 and beyond athletes. So, Tim, tell us a little bit about the William V. Campbell and why Tyler's up for it. Well, I mean, it's based on um, your grade point average, your stellar play in the field, community service. And uh, Tyler checks all those boxes. Uh, outstanding outstanding performer for the Lakers, two-time All-Gleic honoree, uh, two-time academic All-American. Um, and so, you know, obviously – Tyler, we talked about it before. Somebody gave him an A minus, which we're not really sure. We would like to know who that was. We could probably go go back through his transcripts and figure it out. But yeah, we'll talk to Damon. Um, and see what we can get. Uh, but just an outstanding, you know, a student athlete. I mean, he's the epitome of of what you want in your student athletes. Takes care of business on the field, off the field. No social issues. Um, so just a great young man, and he's being rewarded for it. And we're looking forward to getting back in the field here in uh, in. January, February, starting practice, and then uh, Tyler's senior year in 2021. So eagerly awaiting those days. You know, it kind of takes me back to Bart Williams' senior year where it seemed like every single week he was breaking another record or we were giving him another game ball or we were making another graphic because he found another way into the record books. Tyler's kind of doing the same thing this year where he finds himself up for another award basically every week. Well, you know, I mean, it it takes – you have to check all the boxes for these uh, awards that he's being honored with um, and, and these nominees. And community service, uh, academics is a huge part of it, and you're playing the field. And not everyone can, you know, check all those boxes. And so, you know, we do a good job of finding those student-athletes early in their careers, realizing, hey, hey who's going to be Cassidy Bench 
type situation. Who are going to be those student athletes that are going to excel in the classroom, excel in the field? Well, what's that third area that these uh, awards really look at? Community service. And so we, we seek those kids out and say, hey, listen, when you're out doing stuff, let us know so we can get that, you know, you know, get information on what you're doing because that's a huge part of, of, of those honors. And uh, so, you know, Head coach Matt Mitchell does a great job of getting the football team out in those community service projects. They go up to Great Wolf uh, uh, to a uh, summer camp in the spring and, and spend four days up there just taking care of that camp. And then he does a good job of, of interacting with the kids with Allendale Public Schools and, and reading. And Blake Smolin, who's a principal at, a, at an Allendale Elementary School, our kids go there. They, they haven't this year because of COVID-19, but in the past uh, they would go there and read to the kids and this be around those young student, or those young uh, elementary age kids, so they see these positive role models. It's definitely important, and Tyler's been great at it. A lot of our student athletes are great at it, and like you mentioned, you know, they, we make sure to have them let us know. But that's not why these student athletes do this. That's not why these teams do it. They do it to give back to our community. They do be involved in the West Michigan community, and it's great to see them recognized for it as well. Before we get to Jerry Baltus, we are quickly going to do our Lakers Spotlight. It's brought to you by Ziegler Automotive. This week's Lakers Senior Spotlight shines on Ethan Culberson of the GVSU football team, the starting center each of the last two seasons. Culberson is a two-time first-team All-GLIAC honoree, and last year was named to the D2CCA All-Super Region 3 team as a junior. A native of Shelby Township, Michigan, Culberson is the epitome of hard work and leads by example, growing from a young buck to a leader on that offensive line. And Tim, I know Ethan's a guy that you've gotten to know very well. I, My first year, I remember he was a sophomore being asked to come in and start at center with a pretty veteran-heavy offensive line, and he stepped right in there and did his job. And now that role has grown to him being the leader on kind of a revamped offensive line. So it'll be really cool to see what he can do when his senior year finally gets rolling next year. Yeah, well. it, you know, Ethan... Um, was was thrust into the maybe the most important position on your offensive line, being a center. He's a young kid. He did an outstanding job um, and had some Ben Walling and had you know Nick Kaiser as a tight end on, on his early teams. And then uh, you know he has emerged into that that guy, the role model for the younger guys um, like uh, Quentin Burrow and Garrett Carroll and those guys who are now. Um, just finished their redshirt freshman years a year ago and are outstanding uh, prospects. And, and, and Ethan has done a great job of mentoring those guys and just showing them the ropes how to be a good offensive lineman. Know your role. Keep your head to the grindstone. Just do your job. You know, those guys aren't looking for the press clippings per se. But um, just be efficient and, and, and do your job. And I know head coach, our uh, offensive line coach Scott Wooster is really excited to get that group together. Well, we do give him a little bit of press here this week with him as the Lakers spotlight. That's Ethan Culberson, the center on the GVSU football offensive line brought to you by Ziegler Automotive. All right, well, we have for the first time an active coach as our guest on the Anchor Up podcast, Jerry Baltus, 21 years at the helm of the GVSU track and field and cross country teams, his first head coaching job, and he's certainly uh, taken it and run with it, if you pardon my pun. All of our interviews are brought to you by Coors Light, reminding you to drink responsibly, distributed locally by Alliance Beverage. All right, here he is, the head track and field and cross-country coach at Grand Valley State, Jerry Baltus. And with that, we now welcome on the track and field cross-country head coach at Grand Valley State, Jerry Baltus. Good enough to give us a little bit of time. The first current head coach to be a guest on the show here, the Anchor Up podcast. Jerry, how you doing? Great. Great to have, uh, great to be with you. Thanks for a little bit of your time here this week. And you know, we got to start with the obvious, the uh, 
cross-country season should be in full swing right now. Obviously, it's not. Everything is kind of thrown up in the air. But as you're still trying to get your student-athletes back into training, what's kind of been the mindset of you, your coaching staff, your student-athletes, this first month of having school back but no cross-country? Yeah, the most important thing, I think, is just uh, trying to get them to understand uh uh, to find the balance in, in getting back into a rot routine. Um, you know, the first two weeks we didn't have practice, so that was a little bit of a challenge because we didn't have as much interaction with them. Um, then we had uh, three weeks of um, semi-practice, and then this is actually our first week, uh, hopefully full go, full practice. So, um, yeah, just uh, making sure you're taking care of business in the classroom and, and uh, managing the training side of things as best as possible with it looking as different as it does. Can you run in a mask as easily as you can without a mask? Depends how fit you are. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it's certainly a hindrance, especially on a, a hot, uh, humid day. Um, as we, as it gets chillier, I don't think it'll be as, as much of an issue. Maybe uh, uh, ice forming on the mask, maybe. But, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's not ideal, but uh, it's one thing we you just deal with and make the best of it. During this summer when you were trying to get all that training done, how did you guys communicate with your student-athletes? What was the communication-like process, trying to keep their training up to date, making sure they were staying as fit as they need to be so they can train in masks like that? Yeah, I think it was a combination. I mean, in the summer, we, we weren't at the mask phase yet. They were on their own, so that wasn't an issue. But, uh, you know, the upperclassmen know what they need to do. Uh, certainly a lot of communication, just general bulk or uh, emails, text messages, but then as much one-on-one -on -one phone calls and, and text back and forth just to help them uh, get what they needed to do to, to progress. So, like I said, the returners, the upperclassmen, not a, not a huge uh, deal. You know, it's really the freshmen. That's probably what we've uh, struggled the most with is just the little interaction we've had with the freshmen to this point. And, and you know, I view myself as a teacher and, and uh, teaching student athletes uh, what it takes to be successful. It's just not go out the door and run as part of it. But there's so many other elements that uh, come into play. So that's that's the biggest thing that we've missed is just the time face to face to teach and and help uh, these young kids uh, grow. These kids are creatures of habit, coach. <clears throat> and you kind of lo you lost that carrot at the end. No GLIAC championships, no regional championships, no NCAA championships, and that's that's what they're striving for. What? What's been the biggest takeaway? How have you kept them motivated towards the end road with no end road there? Well, what we've talked about is there's going to be another race at some point. We just don't know when. So we need to do the things to be ready for when that opportunity comes. Um, I, You know, we we told them whoever does the best job during this whole down point or step back or when we don't have competition whoever prepares and continues to do the right things in training and in a daily lifestyle will be most ready when that opportunity comes to race so you look a little ahead ahead to to that opportunity but uh, we've also you know we've done one time trial already and hopefully have two or three more if everything goes well so you get some of that inner team competition which isn't the same but uh, you know they can see their progress uh, gauge their fitness and Hopefully that puts us in a, a spot uh, come uh, the new year. Hopefully 2021's a little brighter and a little better, and we'll be in a position uh, to compete, and we'll be ready for that. Speaking of 21, let's go 21 years to the past, when you first got to Grand <coughs> Valley State. Take us back to when you first got to Grand Valley. How'd you wind up here? I don't know. <laughs> um, I remember when he interviewed. That was a long time ago. So, yeah, uh, 1999, uh, April. Uh, well, it was during indoor season. 
Uh, Butler University hosted the NCAA championships down at the old RCA Hoosier Dome. And um, I was in charge of, um, I really didn't have a whole lot to do with the championships, but I was in charge of, we ran this uh, youth uh, yes clinic uh, for, I don't know, I think we had about a thousand um, elementary kids uh, come to the track on a Saturday morning and put on this mini clinic and whatnot. And so I'd already applied for the job, but the legendary Al Owens uh, was an official at the meet. That's back when the D2 and D1 meet were held simultaneously in the dome. So 80,000 seat dome and there was 2,000 people, 3,000 people watching the race. So it was a neat atmosphere or a neat venue. Um, but anyways, Al was there and, and him and his wife Sue uh, actually watched the clinic and, and they tell me they saw me running the clinic and whatnot and Al was on the hiring committee and uh, we met, uh, met up uh, after the clinic and um, he told me I would get an interview. So got that interview. I was nervous as hell. Um, <laughs> he was too. Uh, he was. <laughs> I remember uh, his face was red the whole day. We uh, we did the interview over at the the Meadows Golf uh, Course Clubhouse. Um, yeah, so I'm just fortunate. Tim Salgo was willing to take a risk on a little scrappy redhead from <laughs> um, Indiana uh, with two years of coaching experience. So. You know, I was confident in my abilities, uh, but had a little bit to show for it. Uh, our Butler team made the NCAA championships that that uh, fall and finished 16th uh, down in Kansas. Um, um, had a lot of meat management experience, so coached some pretty good runners in those, those two years. So that's how I got here, and then full speed ahead. You went from running at Butler for four years right into coaching, so you were still right in that mix. Did you always know you wanted to get into coaching? Yeah, it, you know, it was one of those things um, – in my high school yearbook, I, I, uh, there's a quote, uh, what do you see yourself doing in 20 years? And I said, hopefully coaching a, a state uh, championship cross-country or basketball team. So I had great high school coaches, uh, a love for athletics. I grew up on a farm, and you were either working or you are playing sports. Um, and sports were way more enjoyable. <laughs> so uh, any time I could get, uh, you know, you, you snuck away to shoot baskets or – uh, hit rocks in the yard. That was our our baseball, you know, deal or whatnot. Um, so yeah, I knew I knew early and often that uh, you know teaching and coaching was what I wanted to do. I went to Butler uh, in secondary education, student taught, did the whole that whole bit. So never w was in a high school setting teaching wise, but you know I see myself teaching every day here at with our student athletes you sound like a true son of indiana you're either working on the farm or you're playing sports it's one or the a lot other of basketball <laughs> but did you play basketball in high school as i well? did I, I played all four years uh we actually had uh, a hoop in in our barn and that's where uh a lot of things went down on the weekends with uh, buddies and whatnot but yeah played all four years uh ran cross country track and field um last two years i was on the varsity we were average uh tried quitting basketball every year and got talked into staying one more year and I'm, I'm glad I did it, it probably I probably wasn't quite as good a, a track runner because I missed all that winter training but uh you know great experiences great friendships uh you know learned a lot from the team aspect so here you are in your early 20s you got your head coaching job at Grand Valley State and you take over a program what was the program like where did you feel like you wanted to take this program what were the goals you set for yourself when you first got on campus here uh, you know, it was, it was, a, uh, it was a building <laughs> start from scratch. Uh, you know, I was the first full-time head coach. So the previous coaches were teachers or, 
worked other jobs and then just came into practice. Um, you know, scholarships were small, budget was small. So, you know, it was a, a starting point. And, you know, I, anything I've ever done is, is all out. Um, so we wanted to build a championship program. Uh, at the time, I, I brought in um, Scott Cook, uh, who uh, ran at Bradley University. Um, didn't know what he wanted to do with his life. Uh, so he came up and, and helped me, me uh, get things going. But uh, the first week, first couple of weeks we were here, Scott was out on a uh, run and found this old red construction hat and uh, brought it in and wrote Baltus on the, on the construction hat. And we had our first team meeting, uh, first week of school, uh, had 90 athletes at it. When I got to the program, there was 30 athletes in the program that summer. We just really worked really hard in trying to boost the numbers up. So we got up to, to 90 that first year. And I walked into that that uh, that that first meeting, and and my mess which the with the red construction hat on, uh, <laughs> looking like a bozo. But my message was we're, we're going to build something strong, something special. And it's going to take a lot of hard work. And you know, the first thing and the main thing I asked for was just student athletes to be willing to work hard and commit to the process. So fortunately, we we had a lot of individuals that that took that challenge on and wanted that challenge you know previously that like I said they had coaches that showed up for practice and you know you couldn't sit down for a meeting during the middle of the day and talk training or talk life or whatnot so they wanted that they embraced that and when I walked in we had never won a conference championship in the school's history and that first year somehow we won four of them uh, women won all three and um, the men won um, or yeah the women won all three and and uh you won two. We won both tracks. Yeah, so. both track. Yeah. So actually, did we win five that first year? Maybe we won five. Five of your 114 or whatever so it is now, GLIAC championships. That was a long time ago. So <laughs> sometimes I struggle remembering yesterday. So where my keys are. So uh, yeah, we had a great first year. Um, student athletes embraced the um, the challenge and the opportunity, and, and uh, a lot of good things happened. You're building it. You're building it. You're building it, and finally. You cross that precipice you win that first national championship with that women's team tell, tell us about that experience what that season was like maybe about maybe that championship meet as well well I think you got to go back the year before we won that cross-country championship in 2010 and 20 2009 we we're in southern Indiana in Evansville um, for the national championships and and I, I remember you know it, it was sort of a a goal or expectation or you wanted to win or we wanted to win I wanted to win on my home soil or whatnot and we had a good team I had some buddies there from from my college days um, I think my high school coach was there and we were in total control of the race and there was a big hill with about 600 to go and coaches were coming up that hill uh, 600 meters from the finish ahead of the race and congratulating me on uh, us winning <laughs> and uh, and then one of our runners came up and, and um, didn't make it to the finish, uh, collapsed, and lost some places, and we ended up losing by nine nine points. So go from having the, the, the race wrapped up to losing by nine places and, and a bunch of coaches congratulating you, thinking we had won. And, and you know, so that stung. But that, that was the motivator that we left that meet uh, as a program, student-athletes, and myself – motivated and determined we were going to get it done the next year and 
Uh, we were down in Louisville and uh, festival year, so it was great because we had uh, uh, volleyball was out there. We had all the administrators out there, and it was uh, just a great atmosphere. It snowed the night before. Um, you know, we embraced the elements. The, the You look at all our championships, uh, most of them were won in crappy conditions, minus a, a couple. Uh, so we embraced that. It snowed the night before, and we just dominated the race from start to finish, and, and we knew we were going to take care of business that day. Two two things, Coach. You've always you've recruited though the the kid that is under recruited, the the two sport athlete, the kid that is is playing softball, basketball, and running track across country. And you've really turned them into your hidden gems. You can go over the years, you know, Mandy Zemba being one, and others that have also played two sports here at Grand Valley. Why do you take that approach? And then secondly, um, your team has great camaraderie amongst each, each other. So. It's, uh, well, I, you know, one, um, you'll take any talented individual that you can. So um, the challenge is that, you know, we don't always have the opportunity to get the superstars out of high school. So we've got to find – we either don't get them because they're going elsewhere or they cost a heck of a lot of money scholarship-wise. And early on, we didn't have much scholarship. We had three scholarships on the men's side and three and a half on the – the women's side so we really had to, to work really hard on the recruiting side and, and find the right individuals um, you know maybe the individual that that wasn't a superstar in high school um, because they weren't in the, the best program or didn't have great facilities or they did compete in three different sports um, you know and you, so you took chances on a few more individuals um, but you tried to find the, those gems that weren't quite polished um, those usually take a little bit more time and if you look at the success of our student athletes you know most of our kids that are successful very few come in and, and are superstars from day one every once in a while you know I think Mandy Zemba's the exception winning a national championship her first year um, but most of them take two three sometimes four years to break through and, and that's simply because it takes a lot of hard work uh, to get where you're going um, so yeah we've always focused on, on we focus on the right people. Early on, I, I recruited uh, talent and numbers um, and didn't focus on the right people. And, you know, those individuals don't always do the right things for your program. They do what's right for them. But we want to find people that are totally bought into our program and making each other better and, at the end of the day, making our program better. And at the end of the, a career, those individuals will be better uh, because they have the support of one another. So so that's been important to us, finding the right people. You know, I, I'll take a l little less talented individual that has the right mindset, the right passion, the right desire than someone that's super talented that, that won't buy in. Um, and then we've done it with numbers. Um, you know, we re recruit a lot of, lot of walk-ons. Um, we give a lot of individuals an opportunity. Why? Probably a little bit. That was me. Uh, out of high school, you know, so I want to give individuals an opportunity. We don't have, you know, you don't have as much scholarship early on, so you have to take chances on some of those individuals, and you just ask them to work hard and be great teammates. And we've had a lot of those individuals over the years turn into people that, that have help, uh, helped us at a very, very high level. Jerry, was there an aha moment when you kind of turned from just looking at the numbers to looking at the people that are the right fit for your program? Well, I think it was it was the first year our men qualified for the national championship. We had an individual that had been our number one runner the previous two years, 
And our program had taken a, a little bit of a step forward depth-wise, and this individual had put himself in the wrong situation lifestyle-wise, making poor decisions um, socially and, and party-wise. And he went from being our number one runner to being our number three, four, five runner, uh, missed some practices. So on a Saturday, we host the regional championships out at Old Rolling Hills Golf Course, and our men qualify for the national championships. Well, that Saturday night, our guys had a pretty good time, good, <laughs> darn good time. And not just the one individual. I think the whole team had a good time. But everyone else was at practice the next morning, Sunday morning. We do our, our token long run, and that individual wasn't there. And I had a group of seniors uh, come in and say, Coach, we'd rather not go to the national meet than go with this individual. So we didn't run that individual who had finished 16th at the national meet the year before as a sophomore. And... Um, we went o over to Ashland, finished ninth in the country. We put that runner in there. We're probably sixth, fifth, sixth, seventh, you know, finished a little bit higher. But we, we, we set a tone for our program for the years to come that we needed the right people making the right decisions each and every day. And that the regional and just getting to the national meet wasn't the most important thing. Being prepared and ready to compete once we get to the national meet is the most important thing. You know, I go back to that story you told about 2010 in Louisville, and I can't help but think to 2018 in Pittsburgh. It sounds like deja vu all over again for your men finally breaking through. Super muddy course. We still have those shoes of yours caked in mud from the sweep of the national championships at a festival year in Pittsburgh. Take us back to that men's one. I know that one was special for you. Yeah, no doubt. You know, I, I, we were third three times prior. Um, you know, you look back at the women, we were uh, – uh, I'm sorry, we were runner-up three times prior. We, Our women were runner-up six times prior to winning that first national championship. So you just got to keep, you know, beating at the door and trying to knock it down. So <laughs> that day in Pittsburgh, we weren't – that year in 2018, we did not have the best team. We had the best team on the day in Pittsburgh. And that's, you know, when you get to a national championship, that that's all that matters. You, you got to get there first and then be ready to go when you get there. So certainly the elements helped us, but they helped us because we embraced them um, and we made the most of them. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was an exciting day to, you know, certainly get that first win and then for the women to come back and dominate like they did. Uh, it was just extraordinary. And you look at that lineup, you know, it's, of course, Zach Panning's a superstar, Enal's a superstar, but you know, our next three runners are just okay guys. You know, guys that just blue collar weren't superstars in, in high school. They were good runners. Um, just worked their rear end off, bought in, made the most out of the opportunity. Take us through that first moment of the men's race when Zach Panning does a full on somersault right out of the gates. The emotional roller coaster, maybe, that you have off the starting line. Or what's your emotion like in general during a national championship meet? Like you said, anything can happen, whether you're the all out favorite or an underdog. You know, on race day, anything can happen. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm calm but on edge. I would say, <laughs> you know, I, uh, you try, I've learned try not get too excited, uh, keep the the highs not too high and the lows not too low. But oddly enough, you know, there was a there was a restart in both races those that day. Um, they called the men back, and the, you know, it wasn't a great situation. The the course wasn't made for national championship cross country, so the the starting boxes you could only have two people across the front when normally you have three or four. 
uh, you know, you took it was downhill within tw 200 meters of the race. Then you took a turn, so it, it wasn't. And then you throw in the weather. So I'm standing probably five, six hundred meters out, uh, 300 meters from the first downhill, which is 200 meters into the race, two, 300 meters in the race, and I can see. Um, someone flip and two of our guys get pushed into the orange fencing off to the side and you know it going through my mind and the words coming out of my mouth were oh whatever <laughs> and um and then i'm like well hopefully we re hopefully we got back on our feet regrouped and you know 10k is a long long ways and it's crappy conditions so we got time um so i, I run down about 400 meters it's about 800 meters into the race and zach panning's in back of the backpack and like you know, probably 18, 20, 25th spot. I'm like, well, must have not been him who fell. <laughs> um, you know, and the rest of our guys are all in that mix of 80 to 120. So not in great spot, but same thing, you know, long race to go. And so Zach makes his way up to the, to the front of the race and does his thing, leads the whole race. Certainly was the best runner on the day or uh, in the during the year. But again, you know, circumstances on the day didn't allow him to, to win the championship. The boy from Pueblo sat on his shoulder the whole way and then out kicked him. Well, after the race, after the celebration, I'm like, hey, what, you know, what, how'd you feel? What, what happened? He said, well, that, that, that fall. And I was like, fall? <laughs> that was you that fell? Yeah, that was me that fell. I said, well, what, what happened? What, when did, you know, what, what'd you do after you fell? And, and uh, he was like, the night before we had talked in our team meeting, we said, hey, people are going to fall. It's muddy. It's slippery. You're Someone on this team's going to fall and go down. Don't panic. Don't freak out. Don't get up and feel like you got to make up whatever places you did. You lost in the next uh, 400 meters. Take your time. Get your composure. You, know, you start sprinting. Your heart rate goes up and really shocks your system. So I said, Zach, what what'd you do? He said, I did exactly what you told us not to do. I got up. I sprinted, fought through <laughs> the crowd, got back in the mix. So, you know, um, competitive spirits uh, in the moment uh, do crazy things and you know put him in a position he was worried he wouldn't the race would get away from him there were great runners in the race and um, the reality is he was so much better than the field if he would have been patient he probably would have been all right but he did so much work to get back up to the front net that, that four six eight hundred meters and then led the whole race you know that the the guy from Pueblo just sort of used and abused him and Put he used his kick early in the race. As yeah, pretty much. That's a great way to sum it up. So, um, you know, uh, would have loved to, you know, Sarah Berger won the women's race, both team championships. Zach was second. Would have been awesome to, to sweep sweep all that. But, uh, you know, our guys got in there and, and uh, fought, and it was close the whole way. I, you know, I was probably more worried about me making the finish line than them. <laughs> there was a huge hill with uh, 600 meters to go, and Coach Watson and I had to run up that hill and, you know, about three times I was ready to stop and uh, just look at the, the my phone for the score on the on the live updates. But we eventually made it there. It was a great excitement, great uh, celebration. Uh, but, you know, the crazy thing about our sport is you celebrate one championship and the women have to go right next. Right. You know, so you're you're trying to control your emotions as a coach. Uh, you know, you celebrate with the guys for five, ten minutes, but then you're going to focus on the women and, and make sure their heads are in the right spot and execute race plans and they're not too high and, you know, their heads and focus on what we got to get get done. So we turned our attention to that, and uh, you know, we got we got a little lucky on the women's side. We were totally on the right right side of the box, and it was a little clearer path, less mud, and we got out and got in a great spot. And you know, we had uh, four ladies in the top ten the whole race, and just dominated the race. Sim not, you know, similar to what we did in Louisville in 2014 when we went one, two, three in the the slot fest of the mud. So.
you know, we embrace those elements and, and try to make the uh, most uh, of that situation. Festival years are certainly good for you guys, yeah. then, apparently. But you mentioned Sarah Berger, and I want to touch on that real quick because she's a transfer from Walsh, and that's been a big thing for you, finding those graduate transfers, finding those people that want to continue and use that fifth year and continue their education, not only at whether it's PA school or one of the other opportunities at Grand Valley, but also they come in more polished maybe than one of those two-sport athletes, those diamonds in the rough that you're talking about. Can you give us some insight into that philosophy on finding transfers and the grad students and how that's kind of affected your program? Well, it certainly helped us at a high level, and I think if you look at any great programs across the country, most of them uh, have some transfers that come in and do some great things. Uh, most of our transfers that have helped us at a high level are, are the grad transfers. And, uh, you know, I think it's a simple fact. They do come in. They, they've got, they know what they need to do, and, you know, they're, they're polished academically. Most of them are, are ladies have been health science uh, individuals. So, you know, it's a little bit of luck. First of all, we've got a great health science program with PT, PA, you know, that side of things. So that's that's the first step. Two, it's a little bit of luck. I, you know, I wouldn't say we've gone out and found these individuals. These, these individuals uh, came to Grand Valley because they were interested in our health science programs for the most part. You know, right now we've got Isaac Harding, a former Rockford uh, High School uh, superstar, and finished 41st at the – NCAA championships for Michigan last year. He's in our PT school. So, you know, and, and they've got to be good students to get in our PT, PA program. So they got to be well-rounded student-athletes. So, you know, I don't know if it's as much as us finding them. I, once we hear about it, we're doing everything we can to, uh, you know, put them in the best situation, uh, hopefully get accepted and, and make them want to be here. Um, you know, you go back to Betsy Graney and Rachel Patterson, who were part of our uh, 20 uh, – 2012 uh, team uh, that won the NCAA championships and and we only won by I think nine points uh, out in Albuquerque or out in uh, Pueblo that year and you take those two individuals out of the mix we don't win a national championship and that's the best team one of the best teams in NCAA history you know uh, we scored 93 points and Lincoln uh, scored 87 well wow. and you take you know uh, Patterson won the 10k and was second or third in uh uh, 5K, uh, Betsy won the steeplechase. So, you know, we've been fortunate, very blessed and fortunate to, to get uh, some strong transfers in that, that sense. So, But once they get there here, it's not easy. You know, the programs are very demanding and challenging. Uh, we have to be flexible in training. And, you know, that year when Betsy and Rachel were here, um, you know, their racing schedule was totally different than everyone else's because of their school schedule and how midterms fell and tests fell uh you know betsy or rachel didn't even run the conference championship which we hosted because she was already in her clinicals and couldn't miss clinicals if she missed clinicals she couldn't go to the ncaa championship so we, we she didn't run the uh ncaa champ or the gliac championships we hosted so she could run the glee or the national championships a, a few weeks later um you know, so, yeah, it's certainly been a positive for us. And anyone listening out there, if you know any grad students uh, <laughs> interested in grad, pro grad programs, uh, well, we're willing to work with you and, and, <laughs> and make it work for both sides. Coach, we'd be, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about your coaching staff. <clears throat> Outstanding coaching staff. You've really put a lot of faith and effort into bringing in the right coaches for your respective events. Yeah, you know, that that's the first part. You know, the first part is getting the, the right student-athletes. But to get the right student athletes, you got to have the right assistant coach and the right coaching staff the, with the right mindset. So yeah, over the years, incredible um, uh, assistant coaches. You know, when I got here, I was the only full-time coach, so it was a bunch of um, part-timers. You know, I think back to that first year, 
we had people that were still students coaching our student athletes. Wow. You know, Mike Lentz and Bob Ignatowski, they were finishing their student teaching and whatnot and did an incredible job. Uh, Joe Skreisky, uh, a volunteer firefighter, a full-time firefighter, so he's here two days, one week, four days the next week. Uh, you know, tough situations, but we did it. Uh, we, we did it with blue collar and, and hard work. And then, fortunately, after two years, we got a, uh, a full-time assistant, Lou Andreatis, who's been with me the last 20 years. Um, been the cornerstone of our um, program, of course, with with the pole vault, but also with our meat administration and a lot of our uh, behind-the-scenes stuff. And then a couple of years later, we get a, uh, another assistant uh, added uh, to uh, that position's overseen our, our sprinters over the years. And, and then, you know, once we got the, the Kelly, the indoor facility, um, we were operating on two assistant coaches and then a bunch of uh, part-time volunteer assistant coaches that we paid $2,000, $4,000, helped with their uh, you know, tuition money to come in and coach practice. And when we got the new facility, I said, hey, we need coaches here for our, our student athletes that are here all day. You know, from, from 8 a.m., 6 a.m., 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., 8 p.m. to not just run practice, but to recruit, to meet with recruits, to meet with student athletes and talk training, talk uh, academics, talk personal life, uh, be their mentors, be their 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 um, support system away from home. So you know we've had to fundraise uh, those dollars over the years, but it, you know it's it's been the reason we've taken the next step. Um, you know our administration over the years have been super supportive to get us from three scholarships to fully funded at 12.6 on both sides. Of course, our facilities are, are incredible. The support uh, with budget going from not very much budget money to okay budget money now. And then to have the facilities to, to fundraise. But our, our, our assistant coaches work really, really hard. And we've got a lot of volunteers. Right now we've got 17 volunteers on our staff that come in at practice, help with home meets, help with recruiting, that make no money. But they give their time for our program and our student athletes. So. Our, 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 our coaching staff over the years is the reason we get great student-athletes and the reason our great student-athletes perform the way they do. And then not only that, but some of those former student-athletes become those volunteer coaches mm -hmm. that keep the culture that Tim was talking about earlier. With 160 student-athletes at a time, it's really hard to find a tight-knit group like you guys have, but you do. You mentioned some fundraising. I want to end on this. The big meet, if anyone's on campus, they know what day the big meet is because mm -hmm. it is usually a jam-packed parking yeah. lot. You can't find a space this side of campus because you got so many kids coming in and out from all over this region coming to run in that. What is the big meet race day like for Jerry Baltus? I just sit back in the corner and kick up and drink some Gatorade and, and uh, take it all in. No, it's a total, uh, you know, I mentioned Lou and how much he does for that. But, uh, you know, most uh, big-time track programs that have facilities, they have a support staff that, that do all the, the meat management and all that, that good stuff, director of operations, all that good stuff. And we've got great uh, um, event staff, uh, uh, game management, Jake Marg, you know, Garen Lucius over the years. Uh, sports info staff does an incredible job, athletic training. It's a total team effort. But at the same time, our assistant coaches, are each of them have a duty relative to the meet. So um, we, we get the coach, but we also have to make sure the meet goes well. And when you have 2,000 athletes over two days from all over the country, you know, last year we had uh, Alaska Anchorage here. Um, you know, we usually have four or five California teams, 
Florida, the East Coast, you know, it's represented all over the, the U.S., and then we get some international uh, post-collegians in there. It's a big deal. Um, so, you know, for instance, Steve, Steve Jones, our jumps coach, is in charge of our officials. Uh, Lou Andriatis, uh, you know, coordinating the officials, making sure they sh show up, they're ready to go, all that good stuff. Uh, Lou Andriatis sets uh, the meet up on the front end, entries, all that good stuff. Coach Radlin, our sprint coach, uh, oversees the, the hospitality room, making sure we got food, you know, coaches are fed, uh, officials are, are fed, all that good stuff. Um, you know, Coach Watson oversees uh, all our student workers, our volunteer workers, uh, you know, to run a big track meet like that, it takes about 80 total bodies between officials, you know, long jump breakers, retrievers, um, markers, people to put the, the pole vault bar back up on the, the stanchion. So it's a lot of work, uh, time consuming um, from start to finish. But race day, you know, you get going and you just go. Uh, there, there's no sitting down. There's uh, maybe uh, you get uh, to the end of the meet uh, on one or two days. You can sit down for five minutes before <laughs> the four by four. But you know you, you're balancing coaching and, and meet administration, meet management, and just trying to make sure it goes smooth. And for all the teams that come across the country, but most importantly our student athletes uh, that don't have to go across the country, they get to compete. You know, in our home venue to get stuff done. And it's loud and raucous and it's fun environment in there. That's all the questions I got, Jerry. Thank you so much. Tim, what you got? Well, uh, we are hosting the NCAA uh, Division II Outdoor Championships next two years. Um, talk a bit about that process. Yeah, so, I, um, you know, a lot of work again. No one, not many people put their name in the hat to host NCAA Championships, especially in track and field, because it is a lot of work from, you know, the uh, officials, the the volunteers, making sure everything's ready to go. So Steve Jones is our point person on our staff that, that helps uh, everyone um, be on the same page. Our administration, of course, does an incredible job. Uh, Carrie Becker, uh, director of athletics, uh, oversaw the meet uh, in 13-14 when we hosted and did an incredible job. Walter Moore is going to be that point person this year. So, you know, the great thing is our student athletes get to compete at home. Um, and it's, it's sort of 50-50 or 60-40. Uh, there, there's great excitement when you go on the road for an NCAA championship and get to travel. But the great thing is we'll have so many fans and alumni and parents here to support us. And we got two really, really good track teams. Uh, that's probably been the hardest thing between last indoor season to now. We're pretty confident our women would have won the indoor championships last year. And we're pretty confident our men would have won the cross-country championships this fall. And, and would have been in the mix in, in all the other, uh, you know, the men indoor and outdoor, we had really good teams. We, we feel we've got two teams that can challenge to win the NCAA championships uh, indoor and outdoor this year. So we really hope we get the opportunity to do so, um, you know, and the great thing, it'll be at home outdoors. So come on out in, in, uh, in May, end of May, Memorial Day weekend, and, and uh, show your support, and hopefully we'll be the last ones on the, the podium at the end of the meet. Absolutely. We're looking forward to getting back to competition, hoping to see those great teams compete, especially a chance to do it here in Allendale. Maybe that'll be the next time we have you on the Anchor Up podcast that week of the National Championships on the Outdoors. Jerry Baltus, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was Jerry Baltus, interview brought to you by Coors Light, reminding you to drink responsibly, distributed locally by Alliance Beverage. The Anchor Up podcast is also brought to you in part by Earhart Construction. 
the official construction company of the Grand Valley Sports Network, and by Homewood Suites Grand Rapids. Enjoy all the comforts of home at the only extended-stay hotel in downtown Grand Rapids. All right, let's get to some segments. First up, we have the Team of the Week, brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. Here for you now more than ever, confidence with every card. And we go way back for this one, Tim. This week's Team of the Week is the 1977 GVSU football team. They were the first football team at Grand Valley to win a GLIAC championship, going 4-1 and in conference play. They went 7-3 and overall and set the foundation for a run of three GLIAC titles in a five-year span, including one trip to the NAIA playoffs. A couple of players to tell you about. Rick Van S. ran for 894 yards that season, and Roy Gonzalez threw for then-school record 770 75 yards. That team was the first after graduation of Laker legend Jamie Hosford as well, which is important to note. He got done in 76, so he laid the groundwork for that. And on that 77 team, true freshman David Quinley was the backup quarterback. He made a couple of appearances there, but he'd take over as the full-time starter each of the next three seasons, and he actually still remains 10th all-time in Laker history with 4,455 yards. So that 1977 GVSU football team, that is your team of the week, brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield. And Tim, I know that's even before your time. It was. I, I had to yes. go all the way back to the 70s to find yep. a team before your time, but still, some pretty cool accomplishments, and it's cool to see where that team came from and where they went. Well, it was, and you know, Doc alluded to uh, this team a few years, the, the two years later, that team that went to the play. NAIA playoffs and uh, defeated Wisconsin Whitewater or no Wisconsin Lacrosse. Then went to Elon College and played in the in the infamous Mud Bowl. So Doc Woods, uh, our last week's guest, uh, talked about this era of football. And I'll tell you what's great about these guys: they are still super active in the football alumni association, and they care so much about Grand Valley State football. Um, when you look back uh, at, at the individuals that played in the 70s and 80s, and they care so much about the program, and they give back so willingly um, to uh, Grand Valley State University and the football program, uh, don't, making donations to the Jamie Hosford Center, uh, football center that, that opened last year. And so it's great to uh, you know keep these guys, uh, keep talking about this era of football because they have been so giving and so uh, uh, willing to to give back to the program. Yeah, and you say that in the financial sense, but you also see it in attendance at football games. Mm -hmm. You also see it in their attention to the program now. They are such true diehard fans of GVSU football, and it's really awesome to have that legacy. You know, we talk all the time about the great culture at GVSU, about the football alumni that keep coming back. Well, it started with these guys. If they didn't set that up, you know, you might not have the same relationship that you get from the guys in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s that still come back and still have that tie all the way through the almost 50 years of GVSU football. And uh, we're going to have to have Mitch look this up. I think David Quinley's daughter, I think he moved to Cleveland, and I think Jerry Baltus recruited his daughter to run cross-country here a wow. few years ago. So we're going to have to give that off to Mitch and see if David Quinley's daughter was a, was on the roster for our cross-country team. Okay, there you go. That is next-level knowledge there by Tim Not Talk about legacies and tying everything together. The Anchor Up podcast is brought to you in part by Uccellos, where great food and sports come together. Also brought to you by DTE Energy, Know Your Own Power, and by Mervine Beverage, Bud Light, 
reminding you to drink responsibly. Okay, it's now time for our great moment in Laker history. Tim, you always come up with some great ones, and this is fun because it's not just about a particular team. It's not just about a championship. It's about a moment. It's about something that's really cool. The Randy Katterberg Agency brings us our great moment in Laker history. Tim, I turn it over to you. Well, in 2005, uh, then head coach Dave Diani, who's since gone on on for to coach the uh, Iowa Hawkeye women's soccer team, Coach Diani uh, really did a great job of turning the program around. Um, and in 2005, he led Grand Valley State to its first regional soccer championship. And uh, uh, they were 19 and three that year. Uh, a name in, uh, in soccer lore for Grand Valley State. Katie Taffler was a freshman that year, um, and Katie was the GLIAC freshman of the year. Probably should have been a four-time conference player of the year. Uh, she was three-time. She was really the best player in the league. I think they said, said we're not going to give it to a freshman. I Did think they have a freshman of the year at the time? Uh, yes, she was freshman of the year. And wow. So Katie, uh, 25 goals um, her freshman year. Uh, but that was the first regional championship. Um, that team defeated Southern Illinois Edwardsville one nothing in the, the regional played at Northern Kentucky, then defeated Northern Kentucky 2-0 in the regional final. That game was played on a the old AstroTurf, and it was terrible. I mean, it was <laughs> terrible. There, it was whatever stadium you NFL, you know, stadium back in the, the early two thousands. You well, can me as think a uh, South Jersey native, oh, I'm thinking of Veterans yes. Stadium. I mean, there were they, they talked about there were gaps in the turf which you could step in, and there's there was talk about the regional championship being moved because the turf was so bad. But Northern Kentucky wanted to play, and because we didn't play on turf, we played on grass. They wanted to play on turf because they played on it all the time. It was played there. Grand Valley State defeated Northern Kentucky 2-0, lost to Nebraska-Omaha in the quarterfinal. Um, some names on the team, Shannon Carrier, Morella Tatunzik, and uh, Courtney Willert, all Hall of Famers, along with Katie Taffler, also in the Hall of Fame. So Dave Diani said getting over the hump, winning that first regional championship, in which a few years later they won their – uh, first national championship, but uh, that's our, our our moment in history, um, and it, it was a great great job. of Coach Diani, who's just had an outstanding career here, um, you know, really felt like that was the point where they really they felt like they could compete nationally then. And they certainly did as they went on to win the national championship, as you mentioned, in 2009, the first of six mm -hmm. that they've won there. And that's actually a great place for us to kind of start to wind down this show here, Tim, because you look at the parallels between what soccer did and what track and field cross country did. You talk about taking those steps as a program, right? So track and field with Jerry Baltus got here, like he said, first full-time coach. He was just trying to build out a roster that had enough people to compete. Went from 30 to 90. Then, okay, they got a little bit better. Mm -hmm. They won the GLIAC that year, but it was kind of a fluky thing. And then they came, then they became a consistent GLIAC champion a few years later. Then all of a sudden started getting to that point where we weren't just looking to get to nationals. We were looking to be at our best and competing for a national championship. And to see that rise through both programs like that is very interesting. Yeah, and you know, you can see the uh, well. This goes also goes back to one of our f first podcasts in the, in the interview with Tim Selgo. Dave Diani was the first uh, full-time head women's soccer coach, and you, how do you get Katie Taffler like players by being a full-time coach and recruiting? And so, you know, as Tim Selgo's vision: hire full, make sure you have full-time coaches because recruiting players is the most important part of your job.
yeah, I think the one theme we've kind of come across with everybody we've talked to, whether it was Doc with softball or Jerry today with track and field, you can't compete if you don't have good players. Yeah. That's what it comes down to, and investing that time and the resources. And, you know, for a team like track and field that has 160 student athletes, you really got to go far reaching to find those ones that can compete at the highest level. And that's why he has such a great staff, and that's why he values his staff. I think you could really hear it at the tail part of that interview when he was talking about his assistants, how much they mean to him and how much they mean to this program. Well, and, you know, we've had assistant coaches leave Grand Valley State and go on to uh, Miami of Florida throws coach, uh, Kentucky throws coach, um, Michigan State throws coach. He's brought on outstanding coaches um, that have, you know, been able to recruit those kids and, you know, it they do it by fundraising. I mean, and, and, you know, they don't have it in their budget for nine full-time coaches. So he has to go out and fundraise. He has three or four positions that are funded by the university, and he goes out and fundraises the other three to four coaches who are here full-time. So uh, a lot of hard work, and he's really really done a great job of bringing in quality coaches that have excelled. Yeah, you remember when Michigan Tech all of a sudden started nipping at the heels of Grand Valley in cross country, and you look who's their head coach? Oh, a GVSU yeah, alum. exactly. Go figure. So Jerry's done a great job with his tree as well. That's a really good point, and I think that's something that we've looked at. You know, We talk about it all the time with football, with Brian Kelly, Chuck Martin, how that tree has developed such great coaches and how the legacy of head coaches coming from within the program and building strong assistants and having assistants here that are for a very long time that want to be here go on to do great things but that's a thing that transcends Grand Valley State you know you got some really really top level assistant coaches here that are working their tail off and they're getting great experience learning competing at a high level and they take that and they go wherever they may go well that's almost a segment and in itself the former assistant coaches here who have gone on just in football alone I have I have four to five sheets of paper that Don Thomas has compiled with myself just outlining where those assistant coaches are currently. I mean, it's crazy. And, you know, you could look, go back through basketball, men's and women's basketball, um, soccer and, and softball and baseball and, and where those guys have gone. Well, let's see if Mitch, our producer, had a chance to look up whether or not Quinley was a I could be thinking recruit. of somebody else, but I thought that – No, okay. I could be wrong on that. All right. Well, that, we got to know. We will for let that. you know. We'll let know, you know next week on this segment. There have been plenty of legacies at Grand Valley, nonetheless. That just yeah. may not be one of them. So it's easy to get that confused with another. Well, that's our show for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. NBA Finals wrap up this weekend. MLB playoffs continuing. We'll talk about that. We'll also, of course, keep you updated as we get closer to hopefully a basketball schedule for the GLIAC this year and start to figure out when teams can get back to playing as we start to get a clearer picture of that. So as the month continues, we'll start to have a pretty clear picture of what's coming when January rolls around and the new year hopefully brings some GVSU athletics. But this has been the Anchor Up Podcast presented by Metro Health. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, Laker Nation.